morning, as we continue on our sermon series in the book of Acts, comes from Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 in its entirety. And these are the words of the one and living God. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to an iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to him, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, the angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had completed their service, 
bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, unless you give us ears to hear, we are but deaf. Unless you give us eyes to see, we are blind. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, give us the eyes of faith that we may see the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may hear his word, and that we might indeed give you all the glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, if you were a ruler, what would you be most afraid of? Heavy is the head that wears the crown, after all. And so just think of all the things that could keep you up at night. An invading army, a famine, economic instability, and everyone turns and they look to you for an answer. If you wore a crown for a day, what would make that crown the heaviest? Well, history gives us a real-life example in Mary, Queen of Scotland. And like any leader, Mary faced her challenges. As one who was trying to return Scotland to Roman Catholicism, she faced wars, opposition, accusations, dirty politics. But above all those hostilities, Mary, Queen of Scots, confessed her greatest fear when she said this, quote, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. See, above all earthly weapons, above all armies, it was the prayer of this righteous man that gave her the most fright. And I say that because such spiritual weaponry is exactly what we have in our text this morning as another ruler... The wrathful King Herod, he has his own ambitions to devour, to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And yet, even though he has all the power of the Roman emperor backing him, even though he is mistaken for a God among men, you see him reduced to worm food in an instant, all because a tiny group of believers offer earnest prayer to the God who will not give his glory to another. And so that is our main point to consider this morning, the church's spiritual weaponry that the church fights by and with the sword of the Spirit in full dependence upon Christ her King. And so we'll walk through this chapter in its entirety looking at three simple portions. The rage of a ruler. Secondly, the rescue of the Lord. And lastly, the recompense, the repayment of God. And so firstly, let's look at the rage of a ruler. Now, remember where we are. Since the, the martyrdom of Stephen, it seems like the church has enjoyed great forward progress thus far. One win after another. A kind of triumphalism. Gospel victories around every corner. Thousands coming to faith. Well, Acts 12 is a proverbial slamming on the brakes with some serious setbacks as you see James become the first apostle to be martyred. You see the imprisonment of Peter all under the rage of King Herod. And such is church history that you can nearly set your watch to it, that as the church expands and grows, you can be certain 
that such growth will be met with opposition, even rage. And you see such rage right away in verse 1, that Herod seeks to lay violent hands on the church. And we would do well to pause and ask, well, why? Why Herod's rage? And while we certainly never want to commit the error that the church's mission is a political mission, at the same time, we're equally to recognize that the church inescapably brings political confrontations, if not head-on collisions. To confess, for instance, that Jesus is Lord of all is at the same time to say that Caesar is not Lord of all. That when the political wisdom in Nebuchadnezzar's day called to bow down to him. Shadrach and friends, of course, refused to do so, not because of political allegiance, but because of their sole allegiance to Yahweh as the one true God. And King Herod is in a similar position. And that Rome, not unlike our day, was actually quite tolerant, pluralistic, accommodating to other religions, so long as those other religions bowed their knee in servile obedience to Rome. And so Herod keenly smells a rat, a challenge to the Roman throne, and he reacts with rampage. And you see, his rage does not go unfulfilled, for in verse 2, he kills the apostle James. And notice specifically, his method of execution there in verse 2 is with the sword which is of great significance because as Romans 13 says, God entrusts rulers with a sword of justice. God gives rulers a powerful sword and he ordains them as his lieutenants of justice saying, go and punish evil and promote that which is good. And Herod receives that entrusted sword and yet wields it in the most evil and perverse ways. Instead of protecting the church, He comes to persecute the church. And it gets worse because you see next verse 3 that Herod is only further emboldened because his fury is pleasing to the Jews. So as a a shrewd politician, Herod looks around and goes, man, my rage is only causing my approval rating to increase. I'm scoring points with my constituency. My ratings are going up, and I could even gain more sympathy for my cause. And so you see verses 3 and 4, why stop at James? He goes right for the jugular of the church and thinks, I'm going to arrest the apostle Peter with every intention to bring him up on a sham trial and execute him. It is a sound strategy. Eliminate the ringleader, and you can quell this tiny, subversive sect known as Christianity. And so we ought to zoom out for a minute and recognize how this conflict in Acts 12 is as old as the Garden of Eden itself. That the seed of the serpent, the offspring of Satan, wages war against the seed of the woman, the bride of Christ. That God instituted that curse at the fall saying, I will put enmity, hatred between you and your seed and between the seed of the woman and her offspring. And ever since that day, Up till today, there has been this ongoing holy war. And you see one of its skirmishes, one of its battles, right here in Acts 12. Scripture says, show me a faithful church, and I will show you a war. But Acts 12 also shows us that though there is one war, 
there are two entirely different strategies of war. Because on one hand, you see the world's weaponry, the world's way of fighting, the use of the sword, violent hands, physical force, all fueled by the anger of man, the megalomania of rulers, and all ultimately animated by the powers of darkness. And on the other hand, just witness the church's counterattack, the church's tactical response when it seems the whole world is bearing down on it to destroy it. Just read this battlefield note from verse 5. Peter is kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. See, the contrast is not that the world fights while the church is pacified. The contrast is not that the world fights while the church doesn't. The contrast is in the nature of our weaponry. That while the world fights with carnal weapons, violent hands, the church fights with holy hands, lifted up to her God in prayer. And as 2 Corinthians says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, are not fleshly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Our great God sends us out with these spiritual weapons. And if you think to yourself, oh, okay, I, I, I get it. So the world has real weapons while we have these mystical fake weapons. No, 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 no. Just consider how Hebrews describes the sword of the spirit. That it is sharper than any two-edged sword. In other words, you cannot find an earthly sword that is more piercing, that is more penetrating, that is more effective than the sword of the Spirit. Children, your parents have probably warned you not to play with dangerous things. Don't run with scissors, right? Don't play with fire. Don't shoot your brother with a Nerf ball in his eye there. He'll poke his eye out. Well, kids, believe it or not, you actually have far, far more powerful weapons at your use. That you have far more dangerous weapons at your use, like the sword of the Spirit, and prayer. And kids, your training starts today to become a warrior for the Lord. And indeed, that is a sober question for us all, isn't it? How sharp is your sword? How ready is it that when under attack, your first instinct is to put on the whole armor of God and fight the good fight? For notice verse 5, Herod's violence is met with this violent prayer. And just observe that key word, not just prayer, but, quote, earnest prayer. A kind of expectancy, a kind of intense energy, a kind of determination, the kind of prayer that says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Indeed, all too often our prayers are sporadic, lifeless, lacking in confidence, and you could examine yourself, why aren't my prayers as earnest as they could be? And no doubt there are varied reasons for this. Our lack of discipline, our lack of devotion, the weakness of our flesh, but perhaps in the context of Acts 12, how quick we might be to exhaust all other measures and prayer's the backup plan. Right, a fine thought experiment would be, what if Acts 12 happened in the church of present day America? Would this be our response? Or would we scramble to form a political action committee 
Would we hope for the power of the legislative pen to be our savior? And only after we've tried those strategies, then we'll go to our knees in prayer. You see, Acts 12 demands of us the priority of earnest prayer, that the Christian can and may and must approach the throne of grace with our secret weapon that says, I know that God exists and he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And we get to see such a reward as we turn to our second section and you see how Herod's rage is bested by the Lord's rescue. There was a famous movie decades ago called The Great Escape that depicted how this group of mastermind POWs escaped out of prison, everything from digging tunnels to fashioning these covert outfits to finally find a way out. Well, instead of The Great Escape, you could call this section The Slumbering Escape. Because you see Peter's contribution, if you can call it that, there in verse 6, is that he is sleeping. In fact, so deep in slumber, the angel of the Lord has to strike him just to wake him up. And then his chains simply fall off. And verses 8 and 9 read like instructions on how a mere child is to dress himself and get ready for school. And Peter is still so discombobulated, he can't discern, is this reality or is this all a dream? And not until verse 11, he finally comes to and he says, now I'm sure the Lord sent this angel to rescue me. Now, full credit to Peter. How well would you sleep if you knew tomorrow morning is your execution? It is a faithful slumber. And indeed, we're meant to see Peter's passivity highlights the Lord's activity. How this really is in every way, the Lord's rescue. That salvation belongs to the Lord. Paul tells Timothy something similar when he tells him, Timothy, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Now remember who's saying this. This is Paul. This is a man no stranger to affliction. A man beaten, whipped, shipwrecked, stoned. And yet Paul has what seems like the audacity to tell Timothy, God will rescue me from every evil deed. Christian, could you echo that without wavering? For this is God's precious promise to you. As the psalmist says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver him out of them all. Could you say, even while in the lion's mouth, I know God will rescue me. Whether it be in this life, like Peter, or whether it be in the resurrection life to come, as with the martyr James. I'm certain of the Lord's rescue. Now, as Peter awakens, he's got this great first reaction, which is to go to the people of God. And so you see verse 12, he goes to Mary's house, and you see they're not just in earnest prayer, but corporate prayer. Not isolated individuals, but a body of believers who instead of saying, let's just wait until this whole Roman persecution thing blows over. They say, no, let's gather together in prayer at what is likely a known location to the authorities. And then in verses 13 and 14 comes their answer, but definitely not without some true comedy first, because this girl, Rhoda, is so excited to see Peter, she doesn't even open the door. And so poor Peter's just standing outside, still knocking, saying, let me in, let me in. And she runs to tell the group, Peter's here, Peter's here. 
And you see, even the early church has its weaknesses because in verses 15 and following, they respond, Rhoda, yeah, you're crazy. You're seeing things again. There is no actual Peter. Now, if you excuse me, I've got to get back to praying for Peter. <laughs> During a time of great drought, this congregation summoned the famous preacher Billy Sunday to come and preach and petition for rain, something we're all probably tempted to do right now. And Billy Sunday showed up to preach, and he surveyed the congregation. He said, you know what? I'm not going to preach, and I'm not going to petition for rainfall. And they asked him, why, Billy, why? And Billy Sunday said, because not a single one of you brought an umbrella with you today. You see, the church of Acts 12 is not all that different from us. I believe. Help my unbelief. We so often pray, but mingle with doubt. Or only praying reasonable, safe prayers, predictable prayers. But God is showing them and us that they pray to the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think. And then from there, to spread the news. Verse 17 is one of those verses you could almost skip right over. But notice Peter charges them. Hey, tell these wonderful things to James. Now this is a different James than the one who was just martyred. Peter charges them, get this news to James. And what's interesting is from this point forward, James, this James, takes on this increasingly greater role in ministry. And you just have to wonder, that this news reached James and it invigorated him. This news reached James and it stirred him up to love and good works. It encouraged him. It emboldened him. And what a word for us to never miss an opportunity to tell of the wondrous works of God, to make known his deeds, as the psalmist says. You see all throughout scripture how a bad report discourages a people. Think of the spies in Canaan but how a good word lifts up a people and gives courage to them. When did you last tell of the wondrous works of God out loud? And such wondrous work is exactly how this section closes, with a kind of plot reversal that our great God so often loves to tell. As verses 18 and 19 read, When the day came, that is the day of Peter's execution, it is actually the Roman soldiers who are the ones put to death. And this foreshadows our third section. As we go from the rage, the rescue, and now a look at the Lord's repayment. The Lord's repayment. Because Act 3, the curtain opens with Herod once again dealing with political headaches. And the people of Tyre and Sidon come to him. And you see this stated reason they want peace. But you see the real reason, verse 20, is that Herod is their food bank. Tyre and Sidon are these coastal cities, and they depend on Herod for food. And so they grovel before him. You give us the food, we'll give you Pax Romana in return. And so all of these conditions are ripe for idolatry. The people, instead of looking to God and God alone for daily bread, they come to the state and say, give us our daily bread. And so it's no surprise what comes out of their mouth next. As Herod dons his royal robes, that Josephus tells us sparkled brilliantly in the sunshine. And they proclaim, verse 22, the voice of a God and not of man. And with his ego thoroughly stroked, 
Herod buys his own hype and he finds equality with God something to be grasped at. And he says in his heart, God must decrease so that I might increase. And he breathes his last breath. And if you're here today and not a Christian, know that this is a clear window into the heart of man, into even your own heart. Now, of course, people don't walk around today saying, I am a God. But understand, in Roman culture, emperor worship was normal practice. And our culture does the exact same thing, but just replaces emperor with individual. That the individual says in his heart, I am my own authority. I am accountable to no one. And my authenticity, my self-expression is the undisputed voice of a God. And see how God's judgment upon the proud is as swift as it is precise. Verse 23, that immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. And yes, the autopsy might have read gastric disease. But you see the real reason. Because Herod did not give God the glory. And so if you're here, not a Christian, observe this thieving of glory. And at the same time, know this is the glory you are made for. You are made for glory and to give glory. And such glory is found and found alone only in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If you become to him in simple faith and repentance. And as for Herod, what does the psalmist say? Be wise, you rulers of the earth. And kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. And the very terror that Herod wanted to bring upon the church is brought upon his own head. And so church, do you see how we really are united to Jesus Christ? We really are the members of his body. We really are the bride of Christ. We really are branches to the vine. So much so that when King Herod laid a single finger on James, it was though he's attacking the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so what does our great God say? Vengeance is mine and I will repay. And so what is ours to do but to trust him and trust him alone? And so as we begin to close, let us treasure up in our hearts but three uses of this most marvelous passage of Scripture. Firstly, take up your sword. Take up your sword. We, of course, don't currently face physical violence, the likes of Herod. But no doubt you are certainly up against an opposition to your faith, played out in various ways. That as you seek to bring up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, that good endeavor will be opposed. That as it comes to faithfulness in your career, as you seek to walk the good walk, no doubt you will face pressure. Having seen it firsthand, corporate coercion, if you do not salute the sexual revolution and the spirit of the age, you will soon find yourself in Herod's crosshairs. That students, you especially ought to be aware the ways in which secular media and secular education seek to indoctrinate you 
into a mindset that is opposed to Christ and his kingdom. And so what is the church's response? Is it cower in fear? Is it passivity? At the very top of the list, Acts 12 summons us to earnest, constant, corporate prayer. Earnest, diligent prayer. Charles Spurgeon said it so well when he said, we cannot hope to win by being neutral or to be as agreeable as we can be with our Lord's foes. Grasp your weapon, soldier. Go forth and fight. Secondly, trust your commander. Trust your commander. You have in Acts 12, in many ways, the tale of two men, two faithful men, two apostles, and yet one of them miraculously delivered in Peter, and the other one, James, is executed. And how prone we might be to look at circumstances, to look at outcomes, and start hypothesizing. Oh, well, Peter was probably just a tad bit more faithful than James. Or I bet better prayers were offered for James more than they were offered for Peter. Or I bet even still, I bet God favored Peter just a little bit more than he did James. Now see, the death of James is exactly as Jesus told them it would be. That when asked, can I sit beside you in glory? Jesus foretold this very moment when he said, James, you will drink of the same cup of persecution that I drink of. And so Christian, God's sovereign designs for you, it might have miraculous rescues like Peter, and it might have the lowest of lows like James. But you can be certain of this, that God's sovereign design for you will be to conform you more and more and more to be like your Lord Jesus Christ with an end result of glory. And lastly, finally, Acts 12 shows us how to win by losing. How to win by losing. I open up this sermon saying Acts 12 is a major, major setback. Major losses. Right? You see the death of an apostle. You see an imprisonment. You see the rampage of a ruler. All major, major losses. And just think of James. James probably had 50 more good years in him of preaching and leading. Just think the church outside the door could have read, preaching today in Antioch, James, the son of thunder. Preaching today, James, one of Jesus' inner circle. That'll grow a church, right? And all that momentum lost, cut down. Or was it? Was it? Because just look at the conclusion of verse 24. That James may have been cut down, but the word of God increased. Rome may have bought its best persecution, but the word of God multiplied. Church, the word always wins. That they could bind up Peter, but they could not bind up the word of the Lord. And that is a promise for us this morning. That try as the world may, and try as the world will, to stamp out and destroy the word of God, the more and more it grows. 
And what is ours to do? But to conquer by the testimony of the Lamb and of loving not our lives even unto death. Because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, indeed it is true of the word because you are the author of the word, that all your precepts are true, all of your ways are righteous. And so, Lord, we pray we would see that just as the more Israel was oppressed under Pharaoh, the more and more they multiplied. We pray that that would be true of us, that by fighting the good fight of faith, that under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, we might be faithful unto the very end. We pray that we would seal these words up in our heart and that you would give us the grace to live it out in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.